house full of suspects, red herrings, motives galore, maybe a mansion full of nooks and crannies that a murder could easily happen in. Whodunits are having a bit of a cultural moment right now. I'd love to hear which ones you've been enjoying, or if you're a long-time fan, what is your favourite whodunit of all time and why? I am loving the Thursday Murder Club series of novels at the moment by Richard Osman, set in a retirement village. What's not to love? There's a spy in there who's like 80. It's great. Now, there are plenty of quality offerings on our screens right now when it comes to fictional murder mysteries. After a bit of a glut of true crime in recent years, why? Who is responsible for that? Stuart Richards is a senior lecturer in screen studies at the University of South Australia. He's got his monocle on for this interview. Stuart, welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, would you agree that there are more whodunits or murder mysteries around right now than there have been in recent years? Yes, I think the genre has always been a popular one. Uh, the the detective novel or the detective fiction has always been a staple. Uh, but over the last few years, we have seen this resurgence of uh, whodunits with Kenneth Branagh adapting some Agatha Christie books. Um, and yeah, um, Thursday Murder Club also being published. There was also that great book, Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone by Ooh. Benjamin Stevenson, which is a great one. Um, so yeah, there has been this recent resurgence as well. They really lend themselves to the the big kind of rich people country house or everyone stuck on a cruise ship or a boat on the Nile thing, don't they? They they really need that uh, leisure time to flourish. Yeah, that was... uh a staple of Agatha Christie's writing. She had a lot of cliched, very wealthy people who were usually isolated in some space, whether it be a moving train or on an island or in a hotel. Uh, And they lend themselves to being these very cliched, exaggerated suspects, which the detective must uh, interrogate. Well, that's one of the things that we associate with murder mysteries. Are there other uh, clear-cut genre uh, criteria that that we use to tell a, a good whodunit, Stuart, or, or is it a bit loose around the edges? Well, one thing that uh, Ryan Johnson's Glass Onion uh, does really well is draw upon this old tradition of the whodunit, uh, and he's very directly influenced by Agatha Christie. So, yes, so isolating all of the suspects in one space, which creates this locked room uh, trope where um, the murder happens in a particular space and, and no one can come and go from that space, uh, which means that anyone who was there at that time could do it and it isolates all of the suspects, which creates this game. There's the detective who's very charming most of the time, uh, who is almost our vessel in the narrative. And all of these clues uh, have to be presented to us. The suspects all have to be introduced fairly early. And uh, and so those are almost like an agreement between uh, the you know the, the author or the filmmaker and the reader and the viewer. Well, you mentioned the, the Ryan Johnson smash hit uh, Glass Onion, and that drew that followed on from Knives Out, which had uh, Daniel Craig playing a slightly hammy version of the uh, the charismatic detective. But I mean, there is a bit of a balance, isn't there, sometimes between charming and hard boiled when it comes to those detective figures, you know, Dick Tracy, Philip Marlowe. 
Yeah, the the hard-boiled detective, I would say, is also an offshoot of this murder mystery whodunit uh, genre, um, where the the detective does oscillate between being really likable and funny and charming and odd to also being quite uh, ruthless or just socially inept with those around them. Well, what did you think of, of Kenneth Brunner as Poirot? Because I just looked at him and thought, bring back Peter Ustinov, please. That was the Poirot for me. Yeah, I, I do love the Peter Ustinov films. Um, I, I'm not sold on the Kenneth Branagh, Agatha Christie adaptations. One thing for me is that the puzzle has to be central to the story in an Agatha Christie adaptation. It has to be about the clues and the suspects and interviewing them, where I find that in the Kenneth Branagh adaptations, it becomes more about Poirot. Uh, in Death on the Nile, we get this really weird backstory to how he got his moustache, and it becomes more about, uh, you know, Poirot's in a turmoil driving the investigation rather than that puzzle uh, yeah. to the story. Yeah, I know. And it was very long in the way that a lot of murder mysteries should not be. They really need to be punchy, don't they? They have to be very, very punchy um, because otherwise it can get very tiring for some audiences because if you're constantly you know, investigating and, and paying attention to all of the details, if it goes for over two hours, sometimes I think that's when a film can potentially overstay its welcome. Yeah. And there's also, I guess, it's sometimes it's an effort to suspend our disbelief to the level required by the show. I'm thinking of Midsummer Murders. How is anyone left alive in this village? I mean, I, I don't <laughs> understand. I mean, is that a bit of a stretch? for some people? Oh, well, I think those um, cosy television series that involve murder, um, I think, are also born out of this, uh, you know, tradition of the cosy murder mystery from Agatha Christie where, you know, they're usually centred in a very um, quaint British village. Um, we could also think of maybe Shetland, that great TV series, or Broadchurch. And when a show becomes really popular and serious like Midsummer Murders, then it has to keep on going. And because it's centred in this one village, more murders have to happen in this one village, which can get a bit ridiculous after a while. Yeah, it's insane, isn't it? I uh, just find that very, very funny. We're speaking with Stuart Richards, who's a senior lecturer in screen studies at the University of South Australia, about this uh, possible resurgence in murder mysteries after a lot of focus on true crime in the last uh, five or ten years. Do you think that this interest, Stuart, is being driven more by external factors like star directors, like Ryan Johnson or the, the studios being more willing to take these kinds of projects on or uh, more by pure viewer demand? I think it's I, th I think it's complex. I think it is star-driven. I think uh, someone like Ryan Johnson has, uh, I guess, that cultural power to be able to uh, make a, a film like Knives Out and then Glass Onion and also the new series that's coming out starring Natasha Lyonne, Poker Face, which is almost a riff of the Columbo-style whodunit Um but also, I would say there's this shift, or maybe a shift away from true crime 
because I think there is almost this sometimes a perverse factor when we when we become obsessed with true crime, where you know if we're obsessed over clues and who did it and investigating suspects who are real people, sometimes that can have a bit of an icky feeling where because a, a who done it is often. Uh, fictional, we can really, you know, lean into that puzzle factor guilt-free. Uh, Agatha Christie was, uh, I mean, she did it so well where she really tried to create this, you know, insane scenarios of how a crime could be committed. Uh, and, you know, because it's fictional, it allows you to lean into that uh, puzzle. Well, I understand that there were set down some commandments for a good murder mystery, but that Agatha broke some of them. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so there are, so there was the golden age of detective fiction and there was the detectives club and there were some commandments uh, of what uh, should or shouldn't be done with uh, a murder mystery. So, I mean, because if they were broken, it would feel like you were cheated as, as a reader. Uh, so one thing is that you couldn't have any magic. You couldn't have any supernatural effects because, you know, that takes away from the rationality of the solution. You couldn't have any twins that weren't signalled very early that they were twins. Uh, you couldn't... Um, uh, all of the suspects and all of the clues that the reader would need uh, to to use to solve it had to be introduced very early. But Agatha Christie broke a lot of them. Um, you know, in one novel, I won't say which one, mm -hmm. um, the the narrator ends up being the killer. Um, and that was a very famous uh, breaking uh, of, of the rules of what you could and couldn't do in this genre. That was breathtaking, wasn't it, when you get to, it got great. to the end of that novel? It's like, oh, my God. Well, because it's, it's that classic locked room trope where, you know, she sets up this uh, space where, you know, and Perot painstakingly goes through how no one could have gone in, no one could have gone out, uh, and it becomes you know, this impossible mystery until Perot goes, oh, you did it, who, like, the Perot's talking to in this narrative. Yeah, and it's very um, Conan Doyle, isn't it? Whatever is left, however improbable, uh, mm. must be the thing. I mean, Christie would have been drawing presumably on a rich tradition of whodunits. Yeah, she she did. Um, so yeah, we do have Arthur Conan Doyle. We do have Wilkie Collins with the Moonstone. You know, before Agatha Christie, there was this rich tapestry of the genre already um, there and established that she could play with and um, and tease out in terms of what she could and couldn't do. So, Stuart, for the young folk who might not have grown up with Agatha Christie, as I did, devouring everything in the Euroa High School Library over a course of years, what would you recommend uh, to to start a love of whodunits? Well, I, I, there are two uh, novels that I would say uh, are great entryways to Agatha Christie and her work. Uh, one would be Death, um, Murder on the Orient Express, uh, which is a very tightly um, narrated uh, book where obviously a crime happens, a murder happens on a moving train, and then Poirot one by one interviews all of the suspects. And that's largely how that book unfolds. It's just a series of interviews, and in each interview, a clue is dropped. Um, 
My favourite uh, Agatha Christie novel is And Then There Were None, which has, I think, quite a, a big impact on storytelling. Uh, ten um, people with um, a dirty past, a guilty secret, are all invited onto an island, and then one by one they all get killed off, which has, you know, um, shaped a lot of the slasher narrative mm. of people getting killed off one by one, um, which, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great book. And Pets, I'm really sad to say this, Stuart, that people are dissing uh, Knives Out and Glass Onion on uh, our text line here on Life Matters, <laughs> but really, who could go past Daniel Craig in a seersucker play suit <laughs> on an <laughs> island? But, but that's what's so fun about it. It's just so outrageous and and silly in some regards. I do think Janelle Monet is fantastic um, in the film. Um, and it has this really um, um, a classic storytelling device called the, the Rashomon effect, uh, which is borrowed from the Kurosawa film, where we get this... Um, story retold from different perspectives. So it, there's that repetition in the film. And then when we go back to the beginning of the story, we start seeing new information. So I think the more you watch that film, the more you realise just how um, intelligently uh, Ryan Johnson has uh, written it. Yep, layer upon layer upon layer. Stuart, yeah. it's <laughs> such a joy to chat about one of my favourite things with you. Thanks for your time on Life Matters. My pleasure. Thank you. Stuart Richards is a senior lecturer in screen studies at the University of South Australia. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.